Lord, when we look at the totality of, of what we just sang and what we know in you, Lord, that you stood before our failures. You stood before all of our shortcomings. Lord, while we were still dead in our trespasses and sins, you died for us. You took it all, every bit, all of the, all of the penalty due us, the wrath that should be ours, Lord, you took. So what can we say? What can we do, Lord, the only logical, the only real thing that we should all do is just surrender all to you. Lord, that's our heart. That's our desire. And Lord, our flesh so often gets in the way. So Lord, we make a decision to crucify our flesh, to die to ourselves and to live to you. Lord, that's a decision we need to make continually. And Lord, we know it is only by your grace. So Lord, pour your grace out upon us. Lord, we ask that you bless our time now in your word tonight as we finish our study of the book of beginnings, the book of Genesis. And Lord, we thank you for the time we've had in it. What an amazing word you've preserved for us. It's alive, it's active, and Lord, go through us tonight again as you so often do. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, well, good evening. Go ahead and have a seat. Take out your Bibles. Genesis chapter 48. How are you doing so far? Good week so far? Yeah? All right, good. One of you. The rest of you, I hope you really draw some great encouragement out of the word tonight. <laughs> All right, Genesis 48. If you'll remember, we've been studying the last several weeks as we've been rapidly coming to the end of Genesis. We've been looking at the story and the life of Joseph. And the last time we were together, we talked about the fact that now the whole family now is gathered back together, united again in Egypt here. And we left off with uh, Joseph promising Jacob that when Jacob did finally die, that he would not bury him there in Egypt, but he would take him back and be buried with his, his forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, in the promised land. And Isaac promised, or I'm sorry, Joseph promised to do that. So verse, or chapter 48, we pick up verse 1. It says, Now it came about after these things that Joseph was told, Behold, your father is sick. So he took his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, with him. When it was told to Jacob, Behold, your son Joseph has come to you, Israel collected his strength and sat up in the bed. Jacob is at the end of his life. Jacob, Israel, his new name, at the end of his life. He knows within just moments, hours maybe, that he will breathe his last and as he refers to here, be gathered to his fathers, that he will be dying. And Word gets out through those that are taking care of him to his son Joseph that Jacob is near this point. And it says that Joseph comes with his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, and Jacob hears it and he sees the, the shadow of them. We're going to see that his eyesight isn't very good. And his spirits are lifted. He, he musters enough strength to sit up in bed. And I just want to stop real quick here because we talked about this on Sunday, the importance of going to see those who are sick, to see those who, who, are, who are perhaps even in hospice and, and get, getting to them and, and providing encouragement to them and their spirits are lifted when that happens. We don't have any idea sometimes how much just spending a little time with someone really can bless them. And you will find, and if you have done this, you know this to be true, that when you do that, you are blessed. There's been many times when I've gone to visit someone in the hospital and they've just gotten horrible news or they're really sick and I'm walking up there and I'm praying, all right, Lord, give me the words to say because you know, I, don't, I don't know what to say. Or I've gone to a grieving spouse who has just lost a loved one and I'll, you know, Lord, help me what to say. I don't, I don't know what to say. And just, just going there, just listening, just being with them and then they so bless me 
And we're going to see that Joseph may have been going with his sons to bless Jacob to see him again before he dies, but Jacob gives them a blessing. We see verse 3 says, Then Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me. And he said to me, Behold, I will make you a fruitful and numerous, and I will make you a company of peoples, and will give you this land to your descendants after you for an everlasting possession. He recalls the times that he met with God at Luz, then renamed Bethel, and how God spoke these promises to him. And he's passing those on now to his son Joseph. These blessings were for me and for my descendants, you being part of that. Now your two sons, verse 5, who, are, who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine as Reuben and Simeon are. Jacob is saying to Joseph, those two sons that you have, I'm adopting them. They're becoming my sons. And any after that you're, we're going to see here, any after you can claim, but these two I'm claiming. I'm taking them as, as mine, as, as my sons, as though they came directly from me. Now one thing, that, and it's not a real important point, although some people have the picture as we're going to see this picture coming forward, that these are two little boys that are going up to get the blessing. You know, little five, six-year-old boys maybe. Well, if we look back that on verse 28 of ch chapter 47, it says, Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. And in the verse that we just read, he said, the two sons that were born to you before I came. So they're at least 17, if not a little bit older, maybe in their early 20s when this is happening here. Well, verse 6, but your offspring, he said, that, you have been, that have been born after them shall be yours. They shall be called by the names of their brothers in their inheritance. Again, they are going to receive an inheritance as though they were my sons. Now, as for me, when I came to Padan, Rachel died, the wife that he loved, Joseph's mother. To my sorrow in the land of Canaan on the journey, when there was still some distance to go to Ephrath, and I buried her on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. When Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, Who are these? Joseph said to his father, They are my son whom God they are my sons whom God has given me here. So he said, Bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were so dim from age that he could not see. Then Joseph brought them close to him, and he kissed them and embraced them. Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face. And behold, God has let me see your children as well. Then Joseph took them from his knees and bowed with his face to the ground. Jacob, and again, being so uplifted here, thinking, I never thought I'd see you again. And not only do I get to see you and, and get to experience this with you, but your sons as well, and so very blessed. Now, verse 13 says, Joseph took them, both Ephraim, with his right hand toward Israel's left, and Manasseh with his left hand towards Israel's right, and brought them close to him. But Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger, and his left hand on Manasseh's head, crossing his hands, although Manasseh was the firstborn. In this culture, back then, the right, the right hand was the hand of blessing. So if he was, and the blessing went to the oldest son, primarily. So here he's placing, he's crossing his hands. Jacob or Joseph tried to set it up so that Jacob would place his right hand on Manasseh, his left hand on Ephraim, giving the blessing primarily to Manasseh. But Jacob, again, who can't see very well, but knows exactly what he's doing, as we're going to find out, crosses his hands and places his right hand on Ephraim's head, his left hand on Manasseh's head. Now jo Joseph doesn't realize this right away, and Jacob goes ahead now and starts to pronounce the blessing. One thing that is very important that we just draw from here, and this can be a reference that you can use, if you turn, well, you don't have to turn, you can jot this down if you're a note taker, Colossians 1, 15, speaking of Jesus, it says, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Many cults will come knocking on your door and say that Jesus is not God. He is created just like you and I are created. As a matter of fact, and they will go to this verse and say, see right here, it says he's the firstborn of all creation, meaning that he was created first. He was born first as a part of the before the creation. Now, 
it's important that we point to this because here we see that he crossed his hands although Manasseh was the firstborn. Another reference for this, and again, you just jot this down and you look it up later and, like I said, put a little marginal note in your Bible so that when they bring their Bible, you bring yours and take them to this verse, Jeremiah 31.9. It says, With weeping they will come, and my supplication I will lead them. I will make them walk by streams of waters on a straight path in which they will not stumble. For I am a father to Israel and Ephraim, my firstborn. God speaking of the children of Israel calls Ephraim his firstborn. Was Ephraim the firstborn among all of the children that were listed there in Israel? No, as a matter of fact, he was the lastborn. All of the natural sons of Jacob have been born, obviously, and Ephraim is the youngest of Joseph's sons. But God calls him the firstborn. See, the wording that is used, and it's extremely important, and this just blows the whole argument that they use, is it has to do with preeminence, not birth order. Not chronological order, but preeminence. So, just a little side note. You can take that down, and when they knock on your door next time, you can say, aha. Verse 15. He blessed Joseph and said, now he's got his right hand on Ephraim, left hand on Manasseh, and he's, he's pronouncing a blessing for them. The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the lads. And may, may my name live on in them, and the names of my fathers Abraham and Isaac, and may they grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. Jacob pronouncing this blessing. This amazing blessing that, again, if we look back through and we remember the life of Jacob, all of the things, all of the trials that he went through, all of the work that he had to do, we, we saw the incredible things that he accumulated as he worked, but he gives all of the credit to God. Notice this first time that God is referred to as the shepherd. And he says, the God who has been my shepherd all my life to this day, spoken as a shepherd. Jacob was a shepherd. He understood the role of a shepherd. And that was to provide everything that the sheep needed. Food, water, protection. The shepherd had to provide all of that. Sheep aren't smart enough to take care of that themselves. They need a shepherd. And here Jacob is saying, he's been my shepherd all the days of my life. And the angel who has redeemed me, again, redeemed, this is the first time it's used in the Bible, redeemed me. He protected me, but he bought me. He, has, he owns me. Now, if you have a King James Version, that word, that word angel is capitalized, and I don't think that we have to do a far stretch to say that he's referring to the angel that he saw, the pre-incarnate Jesus that he saw, speaking directly of Jesus, and obviously God's role, or Jesus' role in redemption for us. He points in this blessing to the faithfulness of God. Not once does he talk about, you're going to take on my good things, the things that I've done, learn from me. No, he gives all the credit, all the glory to God, the grace of God, and he says, may that continue with you. Well, verse 17 says, when Joseph saw that his father had laid his right hand on Ephraim's head, it displeased him. And he grasped his father's hand to remove it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. Joseph said to his father, Not so, my father, for this one is the firstborn. Place your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He also will become a people, and he also will be great. However, his younger brother shall be, a great, it shall be greater than he, and his descendants shall become a multitude of nations. That is true. Ephraim became a much larger, greater nation, tribe, than Manasseh did. But one thing I want to point out to you, parents, listen, Joseph, it says in verse 13 that he took them. He took the boys and he placed them positionally, strategically, so that they would receive the blessing that was to come. And as parents, we should position our children. We should be thinking about them and strategically placing them in areas that they can succeed. We should be coming alongside them and encouraging them. We should have dreams for our children and encouraging them. We should be praying for them. But notice it says that when his father did what he did, it says in verse 17, it displeased him. 
regardless of what we decide that we want for our children. And who, what parent doesn't? I mean, we all want our kids to succeed. We all have dreams and desires for our children. And they might even start heading down that path. But if God changes their direction, may it never displease us. We can become just like Joseph and saying, not so, Father, not so. God, no, no. And, and try to get involved and try to take the hand off and remove it and move it around. And oh, God has a plan for them. God knows what he's doing. Just like, just like Jacob said to Joseph, I know, son, I know. But I know what I'm doing. Let me do it. And there's a big lesson to learn. As I'm reading through this again today, there's so many times when we can step in, and I've been guilty of that as a parent, stepping in when I probably shouldn't have, seeing a direction that my child is going in and it displeases me. If they're going into sin, it should displease us. But if they make a decision that doesn't line up with what we have for them, our desires for them, we need to leave room for God to work. We need to leave room for Romans 8.28 that God's going to work all things together for good. Well, Joseph relents. Verse 20, it says, He blessed them that day, saying, By you, Israel will pronounce blessings, saying, May God make you like Ephraim and Manasseh. And that became, a, that became a saying amongst the Israelites in later generations. May God be with you like Ephraim. Thus he put Ephraim before Manasseh. Then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I'm about to die, but God will be with you and bring you back to the land of your fathers. Ultimately, that's the the greatest legacy that we can pass on, the greatest blessing that we can pass on is that simple truth to our kids. Gang, kids, God will be with you as he was with me. It's going to be difficult at times. It's going to be, there's going to be struggles at times. There's going to be situations that you get into that you're not going to be able to see a way out. But God will be with you as he was with me. Verse 22, I give you one portion more than your brothers, which I took from the hand of the Amorite with my sword and my bow. You're getting a double blessing because I'm passing this on to Ephraim and Manasseh. I'm passing a double blessing onto you. Now, what he's referring to when he took from the hand of the Amorite with my sword and my bow, there's no record of that in Genesis. So we don't know if he's referring to an actual event that's taken place or if it's prophetic in nature because of all of the other things that we're about to discuss. We don't know that for sure. If it was an actual event, he actually did procure some land this way. It's not recorded for us in Genesis, so we're not going to be dogmatic about it. Chapter 49. Then Jacob summoned his sons and said, Assemble yourselves that I may tell you what will befall you in the days to come. Gather together and hear, O sons of Jacob, and listen to Israel, your father. Again, he's on his dying breath. He's very soon going to be dying, and he knows this. Now he gathers not only Joseph and his two sons, but all of the others. And it might very well have happened that while he's speaking this blessing to Joseph and Ephraim and Manasseh, the other brothers are assembling. Now they're all there. He's saying, all right, gather around. I want to I speak blessing upon you. I want to tell you what's coming up for you. And he starts with his oldest, Reuben. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, and the beginning of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power. And you got to think that Reuben's standing there going, huh. Yeah, firstborn, dad's proud of me, power. Yeah, all right, bring it on, dad. Verse 4, uncontrolled as water, you shall not have preeminence. Because you went up to your father's bed, then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. This is pointing us back to the story we touched on in Genesis chapter 35. Jacob is mourning the death of Rachel and Reuben goes in and sleeps with one of Jacob's wives, not his mother, but Bilhah, one of his other wives. And probably thought after all these years he'd finally, he'd gotten away with it because it doesn't show any record that Jacob ever even reprimanded him for that. But here we see as they're sitting around going to receive these blessings, these, these, these words from their father, he says, 
uncontrolled water, you shall not have preeminence. He starts off the blessing by basically saying, Reuben, you were the oldest. You had every opportunity to take advantage of being the oldest son. You had everything given to you that you needed to do that. You were given, it says, dignity and power. But instead of dignity and holiness, he went after lust. He said, you were given power. You were the oldest son. And because of that and that alone, you had power. You should have been able to tell your brothers and lead your brothers and guide your brothers. But we saw over and over again as we went through this whole story, times when Reuben should have stepped up and stopped it, but he didn't. Remember when the brothers had the idea to to throw Joseph into a pit, to even kill him, to sell him into slavery. They threw him into the pit. Reuben said, well, I'll sneak back later and let him out. Instead of standing up and saying, this is wrong, he's our brother. Later on, when when the story we're going to get to in a second, in Shechem, when the two brothers next to him said, let's do this plan. Let's have them all be circumcised. And we'll get to that story in a second. Instead of standing up and saying, no, he didn't necessarily go along with it, but he didn't do anything either. So instead of power, he showed weakness. Turn, turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 1. This has direct application to all of us. 2 Peter chapter 1. Starting in verse 3, it says, Seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. 2 Peter 1.3 tells us that we have everything we need to live a life of godliness. It's already been given to us as believers. When we accept Jesus as our Lord and Savior, the Holy Spirit takes up residence within us and we have This power, everything that we need has been given to us. Verse 5, it says, For this very reason also, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence, knowledge, and in your knowledge, self-control, and in your self-control, perseverance, and in your perseverance, brotherly kindness, and in in, in in your perseverance, godliness, and in your godliness, brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness, love. All of these qualities are ours that we are to actively put into the faith that we have. They've been given to us, but we need to utilize them. We need to use them. And one of these things is self-control. The Bible tells us that's a fruit of the Spirit, self-control. But instead of exercising that, Reuben didn't. And we all are faced with that. We all face the same challenges, the same temptations that Reuben, will be, that Reuben faced. And are we going to exercise and use the gifts that we've been given of self-control? We've been brotherly kindness. Instead of showing kindness to his brother, he let his brother get sold off into slavery. Love should be the overarching thing of all of that. Bible tells us in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7, that we haven't been given a, a spirit of timidity or fear, but of power, of love, of discipline. That's the spirit that is within us. And, and Jacob is telling Reuben, you had it all. You had everything given to you, and you blew it. Instead of walking in the power and strength and dignity that you were given, you chose a different path. And because of that, that's how you're going to be marked. That's that's the legacy you leave behind. And he says, you shall not have preeminence. And they never did. The tribe of Reuben never had anything really significant come out of it. No leaders, no, no anything. And this was the oldest son. Well, he goes on in his discussion with the brothers. Simon, or Simeon, I'm sorry, and Levi are brothers. Their swords are implements of violence. Let my soul not enter into their council. Let not my glory be united with their assembly. Because in their anger they slew men. And in their self-will they lamed oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce. And their wrath, for it is cruel. I will disperse them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. 
Genesis 34, we, if you remember that story. Again, their daughter or their sister, Jacob's daughter Dinah, was raped by the, the king's son of Shechem. And they came up with this plan, and we don't need to go all the way back through it. You can go back and read it if you'd like. But the, they came up with this plan. This is how we're going to get our revenge. We're going to tell them, hey, we'll, we'll assimilate with you guys. We'll, marry, we'll intermarry with each other, but you have to be circumcised in order to do that. And they all agreed. And on the third day, after they had all been circumcised, when they were completely unable to defend themselves, Simeon and Levi went in and killed them all, slaughtered them all. And, and again, Jacob didn't stand up at the time. He, he said he, he was looking more selfishly at the time, like, look at what grief you've brought upon me. But here it's coming out. Guys, that anger, that's what's defining you. That, that, that anger that you showed. Now, the Bible speaks of, of godly anger. That there are things that go on in the world that should make us angry. I mean, we, we see... We see things done to people that, that should anger us. But the Bible also warns us to not let our sun go down on our anger, that anger, if, it, if it, it can lead to bitterness and wrath and all of those types of things. And the differentiating factor in all of it is if you look here, it says, and in their self-will, they lamed oxen. Bottom line is if you're angry because of something that's been done to you, that's where you cross the line when it comes into then you taking your will and you pushing your will on it. Again, we need to leave room for God's wrath and there is a place for judgment and, and those types of things, but that's God's job. Often the difference between godly and righteous anger is selfishness. It's pride, it's self-will. Now he says that I will divide, I will disperse them in Jacob, I will scatter them in Israel. Now this this became really kind of a, a curse for the, the tribe of Simeon. They became really small during the wilderness wanderings. It says they started out, if we look at Numbers 123, they were the third largest tribe when they left Egypt. But by the time they crossed into the promised land in Numbers 26, they were the smallest tribe. And eventually they became assimilated into the tribe of Judah, dispersed even throughout that. But... It became, if you will, a blessing to Levi. What is said here, not, not his anger, but what is said about being dispersed and scattered in Israel. You see, the, the tribe of Levi, later on, when the, the time when Moses came down off of Mount Sinai and the golden calf, they were worshiping the golden calf and everything that was going on there. It tells us in Exodus 32 that Moses said, basically, whoever is for God, come on over here. And it was the tribe of Levi that stood up and they executed judgment, but they stood up for God. They stood up for what is right. And yes, they never had land of their own. They never had an inheritance of land in the, in the nation of, uh, of Israel. But Joshua 13, tells us that the Lord was their inheritance. And so they were blessed in that regard. They became the, they became the priests of God, serving God in that. Now, you got to think that the rest of the brothers standing around the bed are going, man, I thought this was going to be a pretty good deal. I, 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 I was coming here expecting some good stuff. And if we think of the, the one who's up next, Judah, we think, well, Judah's had a pretty checkered past. Judah, if you'll remember, he was the one, it was his idea to sell Joseph. Let's make some money on this deal. Let's not kill him. Let's make some money. Let's sell him into slavery. It was his idea. Then in chapter 38, we re if you remember the story about him, he went off and married a Canaanite woman. Uh, long story short, he ends up sleeping with his daughter-in-law. I mean, uh, it's just a mess. This is Judah. So you can only imagine what's coming Judah's way. Verse 8, Judah, your brother shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down to you. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He couches, he lies down as a lion, and as a lion who dares rouse him up. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh come. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. 
He ties his foal to a vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He washes his garments in wine and his robes in the blood of grapes. His eyes are dull from wine and his teeth white from milk. That's quite a, quite a blessing being play, played out there given to Judah. But if we look at this and we, and we see the, how this plays perfectly for us, how it, how it has such application for us. You see, Judah had a horrible past leading up to this. His blessing, what is being said over him, though, doesn't have anything to do with his past. The, it says here, Judah is a lion's whelp. Talks about a lion a couple of times here. Revelation 5, verse 5 tells us that Jesus is the lion of Judah. You see, the Messiah would eventually come through Judah. Jesus would be born of the tribe of Judah. And when we look at that in relation to us, how significant that is to us. You see, when you're connected to the Messiah, when you are connected to Jesus, your blessing isn't based on what you've done. It's based on him. It's based completely and solely on him. Now, it's interesting when we look at verse 10, it says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. This has to deal with ruling over Israel. And that is eventually fulfilled about 650 years later, first with David, who comes from the tribe of Judah. And God made a promise to David that his descendants would continually rule. Jesus, again, being a descendant from David, ultimately from Judah. Now, it says that the ruler's staff will not be taken from his feet until Shiloh comes. Shiloh meaning peace or, or one who brings peace. And it's interesting because this verse was one that caused great distress among priests. Josephus talks about this, that approximately the date is varied, somewhere between 7 and 12 AD. The Roman government took away the right for the Jewish people to govern themselves when it comes to capital punishment and all of these things. Even in their, when they were taken into slavery, into Babylon and all those types of things, there remained a remnant, there remained this ability to govern themselves somewhat. But here it was completely removed. And Josephus says that many of the priests and the high priests were wailing and mourning, quoting this verse saying, the ruler's staff has been removed from Israel and the Messiah has not come. Again, saying the Messiah hasn't come. What happened prior to 7 to 12 AD? Jesus was born. And instead of say, looking at this verse and saying, wow, the Messiah must have been born. The Messiah must be here. Let's go find him. They, their hearts were hardened and feeling that God had abandoned them. Again, continually pointing to the Messiah throughout here. 2 Corinthians 5.17 Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. In Christ, you are a new creation. You are a new creature. All of that old stuff, all of that sin, all of your past has been buried, taken away. Don't let the enemy try to convince you any other way. And he'll try. He'll try to point out your failures and your past mistakes and that you don't deserve the blessing. You know what? You don't. But it's not based on that. It's based on him. It's based on him. Well, quickly we'll go through some of these others. Uh, there are some, some great things, you know, if you, do some, you want to do some research on your own. We're not going to go into each one of the tribes. I'm going to read through them real quickly. But uh, the, the, there are some things that point prophetically to this. And some people have gone through and done a lot. But um, uh, again, it's, it's really pointing to a lot of uh, prophecy here. But verse 13, Zebulun will dwell at the seashore and shall be a haven for ships. And his flank shall be towards Sidon. Issachar is a strong donkey lying down between the sheepholds, sheepfolds. When he saw that a resting place was good and that the land was pleasant, he bowed his shoulder to bear burdens and became a slave to forced labor. Dan, verse 16, shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. One of the most famous judges came from the tribe of Dan, that being Samson. 
But it says in verse 17, Dan shall be a serpent in the way, a horned snake in the path that bites the horse's heels so that his rider falls backward. Dan has a pretty checkered past as a tribe. They're the ones who introduced a lot of idolatry in. And it's interesting, a lot of people point to this verse as saying that the Antichrist will come out of the tribe of Dan. Now, there's... People have their reasons for backing that up. I'm, again, not standing on that. I just th thought that was interesting coming. That A serpent, by the way, is never a good thing when it's in the Bible. So it's certainly not a good reference here. But verse 18 is interesting when, I, when, it, when it's kind of stuck in here. It says, for your salvation I wait, O Lord. In the middle of this, and I got to think again, he saw some things. Jacob was given some prophetic vision by God. And going through these things as he's laying them out, in the middle of it, he cries out, for your salvation, I await, O God. That word salvation is the word Yeshua. Yeshua. Jesus' name in Hebrew, Yeshua. So without knowing it necessarily, Jacob is calling out by name, I'm waiting for you, Jesus. I'm waiting for my salvation. How was Jacob saved? Same way you and I are. It wasn't by his good works. It wasn't by anything other than by Jesus. Him looking forward to that. He says, for my salvation, I wait. For our salvation, we don't have to wait. We have it. We have eternal life in Christ. They looking forward to that moment. We looking back. Verse 19, as for Gad, raiders shall raid him, but he will raid at their heels. As for Asher, his food shall be rich, and he will yield royal dainties. Naphtali is a doe let loose. He gives beautiful words. I think it's interesting. Matthew 4 tells us that Capernaum and that region was in the, the tribe of Naphtali, the, the region of Naphtali. And thinking then, he gives beautiful words. Most of Jesus' ministry took place in that area. When you're on the Sea of Galilee, if you've ever been to Israel, you stand in the boat out there and they tell you to point to a certain area and point to a certain area and they say two-thirds two of the Gospels happen right here, right in this shoreline, in this area within the Sea of Galilee. Well, verse 22, we get to Joseph. Joseph is a fruitful bough, a fruitful bough by a spring. Its branches run over a wall. The archers bitterly attacked him and shot at him and harassed him. He got shot at a lot, didn't he? <laughs> Through his life, first by his brothers, then by, then by Potiphar's wife, and then in the, you know, I mean, just continually he's getting shot at. But his bow remained firm, and his arms were agile because of his own strength, not hardly, from the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. His hands make our hands strong. Yes, we are to grab a hold of the bow. Yes, we are to put our shoulder to the yoke. But he is the one who makes us strong. It's his hands. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. On Christ, the solid rock, we stand. From the God of our Father who helps you. And by the Almighty who blesses you. With blessings of heaven above. Blessings of the deep that lies beneath. Blessings of the breast and of the womb. The blessings of your father have surpassed the blessings of my ancestors up to the most utmost bound of the everlasting hills. May they be on the head of Joseph and on the crown of the head of the one distinguished among his brothers. Blessed among, above all of them. Verse 27. Benjamin is a ravenous wolf. In the morning he devours the prey, and in the evening he divides the spoil. All these are the twelve tribes of Israel, and this is what their father said to them when he blessed them. He blessed them, every one with the blessing appropriate to him. Now we again might look at this and say, blessing? I heard a couple of blessings in there, but for the most part it didn't sound like much of a blessing. The big blessing that comes out of this is, guys... Though you've made mistakes along the way, though there's been tragedy, though there's been a whole lot of things, all of you will survive into the promised land. Not you personally, but your descendants. All of you are a part of God's plan. Then he charged them and said to them, I am about to be gathered to my people. 
Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron, the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field of Machpelah, which is before Mamre, in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought along with the field from Ephrath the Hittite for a burial site. There they buried Abraham and his wife Sarah. There they buried Isaac and his wife Rebekah. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is in it, purchased from the sons of Heth. When Jacob finished charging his sons, he drew his feet into his bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. So Jacob, the the patriarch, breathes his last. It's an amazing life that we saw lived out in Jacob. Many, many things that we learned when we were looking at, at his life. But I think bottom line, what we can see when he looks back at it all, and he looks back, remember when he talked to Pharaoh and he said, even unpleasant they are compared to where I'm going, but God had his hand in all of it. He recognized that at the end, passes that blessing along. Chapter 50, then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. Now 40 days were required for it, for such is the period required for embalming. And the Egyptians wept for him 70 days. When the days of mourning for him were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, If now I have found favor in your sight, please speak to Pharaoh, saying, My father has made me swear, saying, Behold, I am about to die. In, in my grave, which I dug for myself in the land of Canaan, there you shall bury me. Now, therefore, please let me go up and bury my father, then I will return. Pharaoh said, Go up and bury your father, as he made you swear. So Joseph went up to bury his father, and with him went up all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his household, and all the elders in the land of Egypt, and all the household of Joseph and his brothers and his father's household. They left only their little ones and their flocks and their herds in the land of Goshen. Quite a funeral procession. But again, a great man who left behind an incredible legacy with his sons and through Joseph, how he had affected an entire the nation of Egypt. There also went up with them both chariots and horsemen, and it was a very great company. When they came to the fleshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, they lamented there with a very great and sorrowful lamentation. And he observed seven days mourning for his father. Now when the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw this mourning at the threshing floor of Atad, they said, this is a grievous mourning for the Egyptians. Therefore it was named Abel Mizraim, which is beyond the Jordan. Thus his sons did for him as he charged them, for his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the land of the field of Machpelah before Mamre, which Abraham had bought along with the field for a burial site from Ephraim the Hittite. After he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt, he and his brothers and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. The funeral is over. The time of mourning is over. They return to Egypt. And now it says here that the brothers, now that dad's gone, they're starting to think, "Uh uh-oh. Now that dad's gone, we're going to get it. Joseph's finally going to unleash his his fury on us. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, what if Joseph bears a grudge against us and pays us back in full for all the wrong which we did to him? So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father charged us before he died, saying, thus you shall say to Joseph, please forgive, I beg you, the transgression of your brothers and their sin, for they did you wrong. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Again, we don't know that this happened. Probably not. They, they have shown a track record in the past of not being the most honest guys and probably trying to figure out a way that they can somehow t- tip the scales in their favor. But it says at the end of verse 17, and Joseph wept when they spoke to him. I can imagine after everything that they've been through and after now several years of after they had gotten back together and how he had shown them. I mean, he could have taken this, you know, he could have wiped them completely out and then gotten, gone and got dad, but he didn't. He had shown them incredible kindness and incredible love. And here they come back to him and say, please make sure, you know, forgive us and don't come down on us and all this. And it says he wept. And I got to think again, his heart broke 
at that point and says, man, they just don't get it. They still don't understand it. You know, the Bible, the New Testament records for us twice when Jesus wept. First, when he was at the tomb of Lazarus. And it was after he had been talking with Mary and Martha and said, I am the resurrection. You believe that, don't you? You believe that he who believes in me will never die. You believe that, don't you? And they said, yes, but they continued on with the mourning. Jesus wept. He, he didn't weep over Lazarus. He knew what he was going to do. If he was weeping for Lazarus, it would be like, I know where Lazarus is right now, and i got to make him come back. That would have been the only weeping he had for Lazarus. He was weeping because they didn't understand it. They still didn't fully grasp who he was and the promise that he's bringing. If you believe in me, you will never really die. You're just going to change addresses. But they didn't get it. And the other time it tells us that Jesus wept is as he's coming in on Palm Sunday and, and the, the people are rejoicing over him saying, Hosanna, Hosanna. And the people should know that this is the day that the Messiah is going to come. It was prophesied in their scriptures, in their writings, the very day. And Jesus stops and he weeps because they don't get it. He said, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I wanted to gather you like a hen gathers her chicks, but you wouldn't have it. You don't get it. And I, I, I guess I, the, the point I want to make in this is how often, I know I do, how often do we fall into that when we do stumble, when we do sin, and we feel like, oh, man, I've totally let God down. He must be so disappointed in me. He has to have turned his back on me. God, please forgive me. I beg you, forgive me. Gang, every sin that you ever have committed, are committing, and will commit has been forgiven already. If you have placed your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you are forgiven. And you stand righteous before God. You are clothed in Christ's righteousness. What happens when we sin? You are clothed in Christ's righteousness. It does not affect how he thinks about you, how he cares about you. Let me let you in on a little secret. You can't disappoint God. You can't. He loves you with a perfect love. Nothing can separate you from it. You, when he looks at you, he sees his son. He sees Jesus. Sin separates us from God, not eternally, but because it's something in us. It's something that's gnawing at us, and we need to confess it, but it's already been forgiven. Confession, repentance simply means, I agree with you, God, this is sin. I turn from it. I turn back to you. And the Bible tells us that he is faithful to forgive us of all our trespasses. And I got to think that these are the types of things that we need to grab a hold of from this. Does Jesus weep over us? No, because he knows. He's eternal. But we need to change the way we think about how Jesus thinks about us. We are forgiven. So often we become like Joseph's brothers. Oh, man, now we're really going to get it. He loves us with an unending love, a perfect love, and we are clothed in his righteousness. Well, verse 18, Then his brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not be afraid, for I am, am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about the present result, to preserve many people alive. Again, guys, doesn't excuse what you did, but God worked it all for good. So therefore, do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. So he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. That's Jesus. That's Jesus. He provides for us. He speaks kindness to us. Now Joseph stayed in Egypt, he and his father's household, and Joseph lived 110 years. Joseph saw the third generation of Ephraim's sons, also the, son of, the sons of Makar, the son of Manasseh, 
were born on Joseph's knees. Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will surely take care of you and bring you up from this land to the land which he promised on oath to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely take care of you, and you shall carry my bones up from here. So Joseph died at the age of 110 years, and he was embalmed and placed in a coffin in Egypt. Joseph saying, you guys are going to get out of here someday. You, when you go, take my body with you. Take my bones with you. I am, I am part of God's chosen people, not part of Egypt. Now, we see the end of Joseph's life here, 110 years. Again, God will surely take care of you, passing that along, that God will watch over you. Well, it's the end of Genesis. Nine months. Nine months. Doesn't seem like that long, has it? I'm glad you said that. <laughs> we saw the creation. We saw the fall of man. We saw the flood. We saw the incredible stories of the lives of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph. And so many amazing things. I mean, I just, I've been so blessed studying through this and sharing. I hope you have too. And we're going to keep on going. So if you want to read ahead, get into Exodus. That's where we'll be next time. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your amazing word. We thank you for the book of beginnings. Lord, it's been a, it's been a great journey. I've been so blessed as to how you've just revealed so many things to me that I never knew. I, I used to think that I knew all of these stories so well, but God, your word is alive. Lord, as we go through it again and again, as we read it out loud, it ministers to us. As we look at the illustrations that you've left for us, it speaks to us. And, and Lord, if we are open to it, we hear the application that you give to us in it. Lord, I pray that all of us are, are changed by your word, changed more into your image. Lord, I thank you for redeeming us. I thank you that our inheritance and the legacy that we have is in you. Lord, I pray as parents, grandparents, that we would pass that legacy on to our children and grandchildren. That it's all about knowing you, Jesus. It's all about what you've done. Bless us now as we head out. Be with us the remainder of this week, Lord, and let us be a light. Let us be a light in this world. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you. We'll see you this weekend. Everything I